we're going to be opening up the book of Philippians. Um, and uh, so I invite you, I invite you to grab your Bible and turn uh, there, um, kind of get your finger there. Um, we're just going to open this up, uh, you know, pretty much during the spring and probably into the summer, uh, looking at this book. And we're going to look at it. We're going to look at it different than most of the sermons that that um, that we're used to. Um, I have this. I have the every once in a while when I go to a book like this, I like to do um, I like to do more of a travel along with the scripture rather than here's a, a closed sermon. Here's a closed sermon. Here's a closed sermon. We haven't done it in a while. Um, but it's the idea is for us to take the this this book of scripture um, and to to, to kind of engage with it and just kind of walk through it rather than saying here is here's a life application lesson here here's a life application lesson here we just want to walk through the text and try to understand it the best we can um, and journey together and so what we're going to do rather than me reading a big huge section of scripture and then picking out one line and saying here's Here's the sermon for today. We're just going to be reading through Philippians. Um, and I'd encourage you to take this week and sit down and read through the whole book of Philippians. It's going to take maybe 20 minutes. Um, it's really not that big of a book. Um, read through it and, and, let, and let's just explore it together um, and, and journey together. So let's join in a word of prayer. And then we're just going to talk about Philippians for a few minutes. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you again for technology that allows us to come together um, as a body. And we ask that you would guide our time as we look um, to this, your written word, uh, that reveals to us the living word, Jesus Christ. Lord, may you be honored in what we say and do. And may the direction that we walk uh, together in your word, may it be your direction. May it open our eyes to what you have said and what are, and are saying. We pray this in Jesus' name. So uh, the book of Philippians, um, and I'm going to I'm going to share with you just a a, a a screen so you can see it um, of what we're talking about when we talk about Philippians. So let me get that one out of the way. I need this. Why won't it share it? Is it that up? That's the one, right? Ah, <laughs> hold on. Why does it keep doing that? Technical problems. Share that one. There. Okay. All right. Everybody see that? Everybody see the earth? Okay. So, uh, most of us are familiar with this this view, the Mediterranean Sea. Israel's over here, Egypt down here. This is Italy. Um, and when we talk about the book of Philippians, we're talking about a city in the region of Macedonia, which is this mountainous region right here. Here's Greece, right, the Peloponnese. Um, this is modern Turkey. And the city of Philippi, this is great about technology. Um, we're going to zoom all the way in here. All right. 
you can actually see the city that this is written to right here. This is the city of Philippi right here. These are the, the Roman ruins of the city of Philippi in real time. This is what they look like right now. Uh, here's, here's an amphitheater cut into the, to the hill. Um, and we can get down pretty close and see everything that's going on. No, you can't get to Street View. We might be able to get to Street Ariel just asked me if I could do Street View. Let me see. Wow, those are great trees. Good job. So. So that is the city of Philippi. And uh, we're going to we're going to be talking about what it was and. Um, its place in history. But you, if we zoom out a little bit, I'm going to zoom out. You can see that Philippi is a few miles. It's about eight miles from the ocean, uh, from the, the uh, Adriatic, uh, sorry, the, uh, the Aegean. And uh, it is um, right next to this harbor in Neapolis. And it's on a Roman road called the Via Ignatia. That's what this purple line is. And that ran from here all the way across Greece and Macedonia to Byzantium, which became Constantinople. It was on a trade route. So in the book of Acts, chapter 16, we read about, um, we read about uh, uh, the Apostle Paul traveling through Asia Minor and trying to decide where God wants him to go. And he he has this vision, and the vision is a man of Macedon, um, a man of Macedonia, and he calls him to come to Macedonia. And so Paul gets on a boat, um, and he sails from the city of Troas. Um, he takes a two-night trip um, they, and across and through to uh, Neapolis, and then he travels to Philippi. And he goes to the city. Again, it's about eight miles uh, inland from the ocean. Um, he goes to the city and he settles in, and the scriptures, uh, Acts chapter 16 says this. Um, so uh, we remained, so this is Luke talking about Paul and uh, Silas and um, Luke himself. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you had judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so the church of the church of Philippi starts in the house of this woman, Lydia. Um, and uh, we'll talk about this a little bit more. But one of the unique things about Luke and Paul in the Bible is how much emphasis they place on women in the church. Um, they, there's a Luke and Paul, particularly Luke's gospel, Acts, and then Paul's writing. There's a huge emphasis on the female leaders of the church, um, whether that's uh, Prisca. Uh, who she and her husband Aquila were were workers with Paul, um, or or Dor Dorcas, who is this woman who's resurrected by Peter. Um, there are there are women that appear throughout um, uh, 
Paul, what's called the Luke and Pauline literature, who are very, very prominent. It's, it's, it's Luke who tells us that Mary, um, the mother of Jesus, was there with the disciples on, on the day of Pentecost. There's, and, and so um, when we deal with the Church of Philippi, we're dealing with a church that begins in a place where the reason that this is significant is it begins in a place where there aren't enough Jewish men to make a synagogue. Um, there, there's what, what you do in Judaism, if you want to have a synagogue, you've got to have 10 men, a quorum, and those 10 men constitute the synagogue. If you have nine men, but 150 women, you can't have a synagogue. All right. Um, you, you could have, you have to have 10 Jewish men. You have to have 10 Torah observant Jewish men in order to make a synagogue. So the reason that Paul goes out to the river is he's expecting to find that there are not 10 men, but there are some men in Philippi who are, who are Jewish. And so they're going to go to the river and they're going to pray there. When he goes there, what he finds is a group of women. He doesn't find any men. Um, now, there's a lot that that tells us. It tells us that there's not a Jewish presence in Philippi. Um, it tells us some things we know from history is that Philippi was a very utilitarian city. Um, it was founded because there were enormous veins of gold in the mountains above the city um, to the tune of, uh, according to um, uh, a, a, guy, a guy named Diodorus Siculus, um, according to the tune of a thousand talents a year of gold, that's about $2.9 billion worth of gold per year coming out of the mines. He's probably exaggerating, but um, significant amounts of gold coming out of the, out of the mines there. Um, and then when, uh, when the Roman Empire was started, it became a Roman colony. And what that means is uh, Caesar Augustus settled a whole bunch of Roman soldiers in the city, and he called it a colony. Colony meant that it was, a, it was not a free city. A free city could live under its own laws. It could, they could have their own government. As a, as a Roman colony, it was under Roman law. All the magistrates of the city had to be Roman officials. They had to be Roman citizens. And so the, the city was run by Roman authorities. Now, if you read Acts, you'll understand why that's a big deal, because um, in Acts 16, Paul is arrested and beaten and put into prison in Philippi, um, which is a big no-no to do to a Roman citizen. So um, there's, an, there's a, a lot of fun that goes on. But there's this one household with Lydia. And then there's a second household, and again, I'm not going to take all the time. I encourage you to read Acts 16, but there's a second household where, G, where Paul is imprisoned, and uh, there's an earthquake, and he's freed, and the jailer thinks that he's gonna that they've all escaped, the prisoners have escaped, he's going to kill himself. Paul tells him he's still there, and the man comes to faith, he and his whole household. So there are two households that come to faith in Philippi. That the house of Lydia and the house of the jailer, um, and they become the core of the church that Paul writes to. Um, now, Paul basically then leaves um, Philippi after he's been imprisoned, um, and he travels through the rest of Macedonia. And if I bring up that map again, uh, you'll see uh, this, this road here that leads from Phil Philippi leads down to the capital, Amphipolis, and then to the city of Thessaloniki, or Thessalonica. Um, and from there, Paul actually winds up sailing down to Athens, which we don't have here. But he spends quite a bit of time here, all right? And he's walking this Roman road 
and he gets to Thessalonica. And when he gets to Thessalonica, the Jews, there's a Jewish society culture in Thessalonica, which is a free city, um, and they cause all kinds of trouble for Paul. And so he has to leave and he goes south. Um, anyway, that happens very pretty much like in the 40s or 50s um, AD. There's this debate about the time frame. When Paul writes his letter to the Philippians, he's in prison in Rome. Um, now, we know this for three, for three reasons. Uh, number one, he tells us he's in prison later in the letter. Number two, he talks about the Praetorians, the imperial guards, and how some of them have come to faith. And then he talks about the emperor's household. And all three of those things indicate that he's in Rome when he writes this letter. And Paul only went to Rome because he was uh, a, a prisoner. So, so that's when this happens. So this letter is probably written in the 60s. Um, it's probably written a decade, a decade and a half after Paul visited Philippi. And, uh, and so what we're going to do, all of that for introduction, to just start reading through Philippians. I encourage you to take the scriptures and read with me. We're going to read the first couple of verses. Um, and uh, we're, we're probably not going to get past verse 2 today. So, um, uh, so but uh, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, um, or with the, the, the bishops and, and the servants, the ministers of two words. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we read one of Paul's epistles, um, you have to understand what an epistle is. Now, most of, most of you read, it's a letter. But in the ancient cultures, especially in Rome, letter writing was a high form of literature. Um, you didn't just scribble a note. Um, there was a pattern that you followed. Uh, there were four components um, of every good letter. Or there were six components of every four good letter, if we re include the introduction and the postscript. So this is what happens. You always have kind of a, a, a pre-letter, what's called the prescript, which is where you tell everybody who you are, your salutation. Then you have an introduction, um, and that's when you kind of talk about why you have something in common with the person you're writing to or the people you're writing to. Then you present um, the point of your letter, what's called the proposition. And then you argue, you present argumentation for your letter, what's called uh, the the probatio, or it's the word probation comes from. Um, and then you make a conclusion, and then you say goodbye. <laughs> so so you have a, a salutation at the beginning, a salutation at the end, and in between, you introduce, then you, you present, then you argue, then you conclude. Very logical system um, that was used um, throughout the ancient world for presenting a, a position on something. Um, and this is this is a this is a high form of literature that Paul uses. Uh, this is not something that the common man would have done. This was something that Roman senators and things did, philosophers did. So when Paul writes the letters, don't think that Paul just sat down and said, I think I'm going to write a letter to Philippi. He has a very specific reason for writing, and it's a very carefully crafted letter. Um, so a couple of things about this prescript, this salutation at the beginning. Uh, Paul introduces himself and Timothy. Now, um, why do you think uh, he includes Timothy? Timothy is a young man that Paul, uh, his, he's, he's half Jewish, half Greek. 
um, Paul introduces him in Acts chapter 16, verse 1, uh, verse 3. Um, Paul has him circumcised, so he is fully Jewish and fully Greek, and brings him with him when Paul goes to minister to the Greek world. Now, Paul is fully Roman and fully Jewish, right? So he is a Jewish man who is a Roman citizen, um, and he speaks Greek, but he is not a Greek. Paul is a Roman Jew. Timothy is a Greek Jew, all right? So, so basically, we're getting a, a microcosm of God sending, or the gospel being sent to all the world, the Romans, the Greeks, the Jews, everybody being included in these two people. But more importantly, Timothy seems to have really, really made an impression on the churches in Macedon. Timothy seems to have been a, a very likable, very um, affable person that, that a lot of people liked. Um, he winds up he winds up being a bishop in Asia Minor. He's he's um, Paul writes two letters to him on how to ins- instructions on how to how to lead the church. There's a there's there just seems to be he was just the guy that everybody liked. Um, Paul was not as likable, I think, as Timothy. He tends to be very caustic. Um, he tends to tell people exactly what he thinks, um, which <laughs> which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. Um, and Paul seemed to have an ability to excite riots, which is uh, not a characteristic of a, of a uh, you know, the guy everybody likes. Um, he's always causing trouble. So, so Paul and Timothy, um, Paul, most of the time, Paul writes his letters. He just says, Paul, a servant of Christ. But what, he includes Timothy um, in uh, this letter, in Colossians, in 2 Corinthians, and then he includes Timothy and Silas both in the letters to, Thessalon- to Thessalonians, all right? Um, and so these guys seem to have been the ones that worked most closely with Paul in Greece, um, as opposed to Rome, where Paul is just known as Paul, all right? Um, uh, Ephesus, where Paul is Paul. He doesn't need to. He doesn't need to include anybody else. But he ministered as a team in Philippi, which I think is uh, interesting to watch Paul evolve and how um, his ministry is. And then Paul takes a minute, and I think this passage is super important, and defines what a church is in verse 2. And this is worth noting. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to the saints in Christ Jesus. So he's, he doesn't say church. Instead, he says the saints in Christ Jesus, those who are holy because they are in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. So he gives us three things that make a church. Saints who are in Christ Jesus, um, who are in a specific location, Philippi, and have a proper organization, the overseers and the deacons. Um, and and he, he's very clear about this. This is who he's writing to. So who is he not writing to? He's not writing to all the false teachers who are claiming to be Christians, claiming to be church leaders that he's going to deal with later. He's going to discuss with them in the letter when he gets into his argumentation. He's not writing to them. He doesn't include them in what he's writing. He's writing to the church. And the church are the people who are holy because they're in Christ Jesus. Not the people who are holy because they say they're holy. The people who are in Christ Jesus at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Now, there's a lot that we could unpack about this. For one thing, the overseers and the deacons are the last thing he lists. So we get the church, the location, and then the leadership. 
So it's not leadership, people, location. All right. It's not, it's not location, building, leaders, and then people. It's the people in Christ Jesus at a location with their overseers and, and deacons. And the, this sounds weird, but so often the, the world and the theology of particularly the Roman Catholic Church, but, but most of the Reformed churches as well, the theology of the church defines the church as the hierarchy, the overseers and the deacons. And then everybody else is just the lay people. They're, they're just underneath the hierarchy. Um, so you can't have the Church of England without the Archbishop of Canterbury. You can't have the Roman Catholic Church without the, 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 the Bishop of Rome, without the Pope, because you have to have the hierarchy. The hierarchy has to be in place. Paul's point is that the hierarchy comes out of this group of saints in Christ Jesus at a location. The, the overseers and deacons rise up from inside the church. And so you have this structure that the church is first and foremost Christ, and then it is people who are called into Christ, and they gather together, and then God gifts and leads, brings up leaders and ministers in their midst. Um, and this is how Paul defines the church. It's how he defines the unity of the church. So these false teachers that he's going to deal with later, if they are attacking the the salvation of those who are in Christ Jesus, that is not of Christ. And if they are questioning the leadership of the, the, the overseers and deacons, the men and women who are the leadership of this church, because they're, they want to bring some other thing in that's not Christ-like. Paul, Paul says this should be our first test. Our first test is, who is the church? What is the church? He says it's saints in a location, saints in Christ Jesus, in that location um, with their overseers and deacons. Now, um, because I come from a Baptist training, Baptists would argue that the church is only the local assembly, that there is no church outside of a local church. So Bedford Road Baptist is the church in Merrimack, and then the other Baptist church would also be the church in Merrimack. I don't think that's what Paul is saying, because remember, how many households are already worshiping in Philippi at the beginning? There's already two, all right? And, and they're not one, you know, there's no indication that they're one big assembly that they're getting together. Rather, there's these two households. So the church doesn't necessarily mean it's one particular, only this church, you know, um, only this group. But it is, there are qualifications for who the church is in Christ Jesus, in a location with overseers and deacons. Um, and then he, he closes his greeting, um, his prescript with this. He says, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you to think about why Paul always brings up grace and peace in Christ Jesus. He always brings it up at the beginning of his letters. He's always talking about these things. And you, you have to ask yourself, when Paul is dealing with so much um, uh, uh, apostasy and problems and issues in the church. Why does he call the church to grace and peace? And I think that it's so important to understand that you can't deal with conflict in the church or in your life without first seeking grace and peace. It, you, you can't, you can't start from, um, blame, passing blame and chaos. 
right? If you start, you start your journey of trying to figure out what's right or wrong about a situation in chaos. Is it, does it ever work that we make a decision from the midst of chaos? You know, we, we have to be calm. We've got to be peaceful. We've got to discover, all right, what, you know, where do I need to be? How do I need to be grounded on Christ? And then grace is super important because grace is what Christ has extended to me and what I should extend to others. Now, grace doesn't mean that I let everybody walk all over me. Uh, you, can, you can still tell somebody they're, they're flat wrong in grace, right? Um, but grace has to be, it has to permeate. Grace and peace have to permeate what we do. And so Paul sets up a position that he is not going to be reactionary in his letter. He's not going to react. He's not going to allow those who are bringing false uh, doctrine into the church, false teachings into the church, he's not going to allow them to choose the battlefield. He's going to choose the battlefield. By first permeating his conversation with grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So firstly, he says, first of all, it's going to be grace from the Father. And then second, it's going to be grace from our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's going to be grace from heaven down. And then Jesus, because he is the resurrected Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to be grace from earth up. So God is going to bring us and close us in grace and peace so that we can resolve this issue and we can sort this out. Um, and uh, he's going to journey with that. And then he's going to unpack all a lot of the issues that are going to that are going to be dealt with in the church. He's going to unpack them. But look at the way he sets it up and how beautifully he does this. As he sets a, he sets the groundwork for dealing with an issue, all right, whether major issue or minor issue, by first saying, what did God ordain? What's the church? And then secondly, grace and peace. Grace and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, once we get those things laid down, then we can begin to deal with the issues. Right? Then we can begin to deal with the arguments. Um, now, I... I this is my personal take on this. I feel as if Paul had trouble doing this in person. Um, there's a moment in Corinthians where Paul says, you really don't want me to come back there. All right. Like he, he, he kind of gives them grief because I think that one of the things that Paul as a person, all right, and we're all people, we all have weaknesses. I think that one of the things that Paul had, has a problem with as a, as a, and I could be inferring this and I could get to heaven and he could correct me and tell me I'm wrong. But Paul has a tendency in person to react, to, to do things that inflame people. I mean, think about how often he winds up getting attacked, driven out of town, and, and he thinks he's doing the right thing. Um, and then sometimes he kind of reflects back and goes, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe not that way. Um, and so, so I think that when he sits down to write his letter, it slows him down. And he's able to focus on Christ and write this letter, not as just a human being, but as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And write not just a, a momentary response as a man, but an eternal response as an agent by which the Holy Spirit gave us his word. And, and so I think as we unpack Paul and we unpack Philippians, we're, we're going to find out all kinds of interesting things about dealing with issues in our lives. But we're also going to get a real insight into how important for Paul, how important uh, who Christ is and what Christ does in the church is to him.
I don't think you can take Paul and read Paul without reading the church. He really believes that the church is so, so important. And so he defines it for the Philippians so they understand. Um, so I don't have any big practical, all right, now go do this. What I want to encourage you to do this week is to read Philippians at least once. Um, grab, I mean, we use English Standard Version, which is, which is great, but grab whatever Bible version you have, um, whatever one you use, read through Philippians, explore it, start jotting down. Here are some thoughts, some questions, some ideas. Um, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about that. I wonder if we're going to address this bit. Um, and really just start doing this. Now, now what I do, um, and I'm going to, I'm going to show you in a second, I'm going to show you what my notes on just this one passage look like. What I do with this is I will often read through, read through, read through, and then I'll have one page at the end of the week. I sit down and just start writing things. And it looks kind of like this. It's just, it's just me jotting things and drawing lines and, and, and connecting. Take the time to look at the connections. If Paul uses the same word here and here, is there a meaning between that? Well, Paul said, I seem to remember Paul saying something else like this somewhere else in one of his other books. Grab, your, grab a concordance or ask one of the elders or somebody to help you out. Where is this mentioned? Jump around. Read the book. Because as we journey together, I think you're going to find there's so much of this for so many. There is something in Philippians for everybody as we read it. Um, just some tremendous stuff. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about more about the language next week and, and some more of the things that Paul does and how he introduces what become really key doctrines. Um, but does them very subtly. Um, so uh, would you join me in a word of prayer? And then we'll we'll kind of unmute everybody and chit-chat. And, and so. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, Lord, as we, as we dive into uh, another book and another study. Uh, Lord, help us to be guided by your Holy Spirit, that we as your church um, in this place, the people you have called us, you have called out, um, as your particular assembly here. Uh, Lord, as we as a church seek your face, uh, Lord, may we see you and know your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.